As you're being seated this morning, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be taking a look at the earliest portions of Jesus' life as we reflect on this Advent season, reminding ourselves of who Jesus is and where he has come from and what that means for us today. We are going to begin in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. You may notice that this does not seem to be the most interesting of passages that is before us. In fact, for a lot of times, if we're honest, when we see a genealogy, most of us are tempted to glaze our eyes over and just wait until something else comes up. But I encourage you as much as you can. Listen carefully, because this is still God's word to us, and there is still something that we can learn from this passage together. So as we go through, try to see if you can recognize as many of these names as you can. We're going to be looking at a few of them today and see how, what we can learn from them. So let's take a look. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliud, and Iliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of, of Matthan, and Matthan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's now go to Jesus and ask his blessing on our text today.
Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this passage that we have before us and what it can teach us about who you can use and how you can use them. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to listen, obey, and believe as we look at this passage together. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. What are you hoping to get for Christmas this year? I mean, what do you really want to get for Christmas? Advertising today tries to get us to buy their products by showing happy, successful people using those products. I've noticed that whenever you see these car commercials, they are never stuck in traffic. They're always zooming through downtown on a Friday evening with any, without any problems at all. And for some reason, the person who gets that exercise bike is already in phenomenal shape. And is always biking in the middle of their high-rise apartment looking over Manhattan. So, in shape and successful. All from this stationary bike. The reason why they show us these people is because they want to sell us a life. They want to sell us an emotion of happiness and success. And they want to tell us that the only thing that is keeping us from this is our own unwillingness to pay or inability to pay. What these products really offer to us is transformation. Buy this car, you'll be the envy of the neighborhood. Buy this bike, you'll be phenomenally in shape because that was the only thing holding us back. But that's not true. These products don't offer transformation. Woodworking tools in the hands of the lazy will produce nothing. You can strap equipment to someone who doesn't want to exercise and they will not get any thinner. Might have a place to hang their clothes, but they won't burn any fat. And what we find is that even when you find successful people, people who have had it all, they tend to be, still be deeply unsatisfied with something that was amazing. And looking at an interview, there was a famous movie director that had ascended basically as far as his career could possibly take him. And he had said, I wish someone had told me that when you reach the top of the mountain that there's nothing there. But we keep falling for this every year in Christmas. The advertising cycle begins. We try to obtain said product only for it to be outdated the next year. We're looking for something to transform us, but it won't be something that we can buy. Indeed, it's something that is bought for us. And it's Jesus and what he offers here. I think as we look into this year, we can find that what we would really want is this transformation. And that's what we see in this passage here, believe it or not. When we look at Jesus's life, and we look before Jesus's life, and the kinds of people that he used. We're going to look at two points today. It's going to form our outline for looking at this passage today. The first, and I believe this is the main point that we're supposed to see from this passage, is that God has sent the Messiah into the world through a flawed but royal line. Jesus sent his Messiah into the world through a flawed and royal line. But the second point that I want us to look at is the flawed who sought the Lord found repentance, which is the gift that Jesus offers to us this year. 
But we're going to take a look at our first point, is that God has sent the Messiah into the world through a flawed but royal line. This is a promise that God has made from the very beginning. If you remember from last year when we went through the Old Testament, we saw the various promises that God had made to his people. And the first one that we saw was from Genesis 3.15. After the world had fallen into sin, that God promised that he would send a Messiah to make all things right. And as we looked further through the Old Testament, when we got to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we saw that that person would come through the line of David. He was going to be a king. Now, Matthew is a Jew who is writing to Jews who are very skeptical of this Jesus fellow, who is making all these grand claims to be the Son of God and all and the Messiah. Matthew wants to show us that this is indeed who he says he is. A genealogy, as one commentator put it, is the ancient resume, showing us where you're from, what you can do, what we expect of you. And this is what Matthew is wanting to do. Now, as we're going to see as we look through this, Matthew does not provide every single name from Abraham to Christ. Matthew is trying to make a point. We can actually see as when we get into the list of kings, there are two or three that he skips as we go along in this passage. This isn't because Matthew is not careful, but it's because Matthew wants to make a point. When he gets into verse 17, he talks about the 14 generations, the 14 generations, and 14 generations. This is meant to be a symbol of completeness, of fullness. Seven was a symbolic number for the Jews that indicated that. And here, what, he, what Matthew is ultimately saying is the culmination of all of the Old Testament, as far as the Jews are concerned, culminates in Christ. You can see all of these famous names, Abraham and David, all bringing up to Jesus himself. But as we look at this list, there are some rather surprising names. There are some people that we would think wouldn't make the cut, wouldn't be worthy to be in the line of Jesus, but they are. Let's take a look at verse 5. There are, I, I wish we could look at all of these names, uh, but we're going to have to focus on just a few. In verse 5, it's notice that we have the father of Boaz by Rahab. Yes, it's that Rahab from Joshua chapter 2. The Gentile prostitute from Jericho is in the line of Christ. This is a tremendous surprise. Now, this is, again, Matthew is making a little bit of a jump because Rahab was about 200 years before Boaz. So she wasn't that old when she had birthed Boaz. But we're we're skipping a few generations. But he's making a point here of who it is that's a part of this. That God is able to use foreigners non-Jews and sinful Jews at that, to bring into his purposes. There's nothing accidental or coincidental about it that God has been bringing in and using these people. There's also, as we look through here, that the line that Jesus comes through has been threatened almost constantly. Even when we get to David, before he was really officially king, he had been tried to be... had a few attempts on his life before he even had the crown. But yet this is God is clearly guiding and preserving this line as he goes through. He mentions Hezekiah here. 
At one point, he had 185,000 people surrounding the capital city of Jerusalem, threatening to take over. You could imagine all of Metro Birmingham surrounding Sanford's campus. Would you feel safe there? Seemed like a rather big threat. But yet, here it is that God is working through these people. He kills all of the Assyrians in a single night and preserves this line down through. This is a marvelous display of his providence and how he works through it. It wasn't protected by the actions of the peoples themselves, certainly. In fact, if we look closely, we we can find an even bigger sinner than Rahab in this list. But it's one you probably haven't heard of in a while, and his name is Manasseh. He's mentioned here in verse 10. He's one of the kings. And I'd actually like you to take a look at this fine gentleman in 2 Kings. Turn with me there. 2 Kings chapter 21. Second Kings chapter 21. This is the son of Hezekiah, the one who is surrounded by those 185,000 Assyrians and called out to God and God saved him. This is his son who is in the line of Jesus. Again, this is Second Kings chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Let's see what you think of this fellow. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars In the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to the law that my servant Moses had commanded them. Here, that little omen But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. There's a fine upstanding fellow. King Manasseh, everybody. Future grandfather of Jesus. Here he's done all of the things that the previous cultures that lived in Canaan did. He did, it seems, he went out of his way to be as evil as he possibly could. And while it's not listed in Scripture, tradition holds that he was the king that had Isaiah sawn in half. This is Manasseh. Yet the Lord was worked through this guy to bring 
Jesus, the Messiah. You can't thwart the plan of God. Whether you are an Assyrian army, 185,000 strong, or the worst king that anyone could remember, God is able to use anyone. This is something that should be comforting to us as we enter into this season. I think one thing that I'm learning more and more as I get older in my life is that I control very little. Very few things go according to plan, especially around this season of life. I'm trying to coordinate everyone's schedules or we invite that Uncle Ralph that nobody really likes to Christmas dinner and chaos ensues just as we expected. What we find is that God is still able to work through that. There is no reason for hopelessness if we thought, all right, if we knew that Jesus was supposed to come through this line and it was known that was to be, people could look at this guy who reigned for 55 years like this and we assume, all right, it's off. There's nothing further God can do. No, there is something that God can do. He didn't even have to thrust Manasseh aside in order to make it happen. He uses Manasseh directly should be a comfort to us as we look in this world where it seems that things seem to be falling apart at an extraordinarily rapid rate. God is able to use it. This is Jesus' own family tree. But of course, Jesus can do more than tolerate someone. He can, as we look into our next point, that he can transform someone, indeed, anyone. Our next point is the flawed who sought the Lord found repentance. That's what we find in this list. Going back over these same people, looking at Rahab from Jericho, a prostitute. But she heard about God. She knew that judgment was coming. And sought out Jesus and said, or, or, or sought out God as she knew him at the time. And was saying, I want to be with this people. I want to put in my lot with God. She knew that she had contributed to the sin of Jericho just as much as anyone. But she sought out the Lord. And the Lord granted her repentance. A work of transformation. Or David. We didn't look at him in his life specifically. But this is a king who was a murderer and an adulterer. Stealing someone else's wife. How do you come back from that? We would assume you can't. But instead, God uses him to write Psalm 51, considered the model of repentance and prayer. Indeed, he put that, as R.C. Sproul pointed out to us several weeks ago, he put it into the National Hymn Book of Israel. This is repentance and transformation. But what about our old rotter, Manasseh? In fact, there is a little bit of a transformation story for him as well. If you'll turn a few more books to the right from 2 Kings. And look with me into 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. We're going to start in verse 10. Remember what we've just talked about with Manasseh. Look at him now. It says in verse 10, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks 
and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and of the entrance of the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. Also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built the high places and set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself, behold, they're written in the chronicles of the seers. And he slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house. Name on his son, raising his place. Now there's a turnaround. Setting up as many false idols as he possibly could, and then he sought the Lord. And he found repentance. That's what's in this list of names. He's right there in verse 10. What he has found is a gift of repentance. And that is a priceless gift. And it is just that. It's a gift. It's not something that we gin up on our own, turning over a new leaf. Your sin is too powerful for you. It really is. You have to come to Christ. You have to entreat God. You have to come to him and say, I need help. God is powerful enough to change Manasseh. He's powerful enough to change you too. What have you gotten yourself into this year? This is a very difficult year, as was the year before. And for many, this was an opportunity to grow in greater dependence on God. But a lot of us didn't. All across the world, a lot of marriages suffered through this pandemic. A lot of people found a lot of unhealthy coping mechanisms to get through this time. A lot of people, when they should have leaned on God more, leaned on themselves and their cable news broadcasts more. Maybe we slipped into other path methods of comforting ourselves. It's easy to do. Sin doesn't let up just because it's a hard year. And we can't say that we ourselves are immune from that. But there is comfort that we can draw from this passage as we look on this list of names, and there are others that we could have looked at if we had time. Is that God is able to use really 
messed up people. But they don't have to stay messed up. They can be transformed. And so can you sitting there. All of us, if we are honest, we need things to change. None of us have reached the end of our sanctification. All of us are right in the middle of it, myself included. And we can look at our lives and see, as we look back over the years and the decades, we can simply assume that there's just no hope for us. But this passage shows us that there is. All of these names point back to these characters that God has used and has transformed. And ultimately by bringing us Christ. That's who we need to look at. But in order for Jesus to make sense, in order for Jesus to be wonderful, we have to see how dangerous our sin is. My uncle, when he was a young man, uh, bought a snake for himself to keep into his house. I don't know why. That's just how he was. But he bought it as a little thing. And it was great as long as it stayed in its cage. But as the months and the years wore on, this got bigger and bigger. Until the point one day he woke up with a snake wrapped around his body. It had gotten big enough to begin its constriction process. Thankfully, apparently, snakes try to constrict first before really giving it their all. And he caught him in the practice round instead of the real thing. Now, my uncle had a choice to make in that moment. Thankfully, he made the right choice and got rid of the snake. But imagine if he didn't. Imagine if he said, well, that was a close one. But I'll just be more careful in the future. I'll keep this thing locked in the room. I'll set up some filters and make sure that doesn't happen again. But I really do like this snake, and I think I can keep it under control. Would you want to stay in that house? Absolutely not. Most of us wouldn't go to sleep if there was a roach in the bedroom, much less a snake. But if that's how you look at your sin, you're already living in that house. And it's a far more dangerous house. If we look to our sin as something that's small that we can manage, or something we don't need to let others know about because I can handle this here. We can keep it small. That was a close one. We almost, but we didn't. If that's how we're viewing our sin, that's the reality we're living in. We've got the growing snake slithering across the room. Might take another 10 years before a close call happens again. But rest assured, it will continue to grow. Sin always grows when left unattended. We have to realize how dangerous that is. We have to realize that our sin is soul-destroying. And until we bring it to Jesus, that there is absolutely no hope that we can have. But that's what we celebrate here for Christmas is that he provides the solution for us. He provides the power of repentance. Now you say, it's like, well, I've been trying to walk with Jesus for a long time. This, is, this is, seems to be, I can't get rid of this sin. Why doesn't it seem to be working for me? Well, it might be we're not leaning on Jesus enough. It might be that we're just trying to manage our sin, try to use the, our own personal means of dealing with it instead of coming to God. Instead of using the means that he gives to us of the word and prayer and each other. 
It's far too often we try to live in our own little bubbles and try to keep things to ourselves, lest we be embarrassed, lest somebody else find out we're sinners. Not supposed to be like that in church. But what you find here is that there is hope for us. Whatever it is that you're trying to keep hidden in the closet, Christ can transform. And instead of looking for something under the tree to transform us, we can look for someone who hung on a tree to transform us and come to Christ in repentance and faith. Something that exists outside of ourselves. This is the message that we ultimately need to bring to the world. The world is looking for a political solution to our problems. That's why we're all so battled about it online. We're missing the true solution, which is Christ. The true reason for our celebration, which is repentance. It's not just having our sins forgiven. That's great. But Christ also promises to transform. To break, from, to break the power of sin in our lives to where we don't have to sin. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but we're no longer forced to. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us and can change us. That's ultimately what we're looking for. Won't be achieved from an exercise bike or a new car. But the life of transformation that we're looking for comes from Christ. And that gift is free. It's not five easy payments. It's not an interest-free loan. It's a gift that Christ offers to us today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this passage that we see before us. These list of names, and we could very easily add our own. We are a rogues gallery of sinners. But you can transform us and you can change us. And I pray that you would do so. I pray that we would look to this season as not just what we can get, but the gift that we can give. A gift of the gospel spread to others. May we carry this good news to the world, that there can be transformation, that there can be forgiveness, and that we can see you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.